You are listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Katie Turr. This program originally aired in 2018. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Katie Turr, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. Now an MSNBC anchor, Turr's memoir, Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History, follows her grueling, often surreal experience as the first television network news reporter to cover the presidential campaign of Donald Trump. And she was one of the first to interview Trump as candidate here in July of 2015. Tur soon became a favorite target for Trump as his attacks on the media escalated and his rallies became increasingly violent and unhinged. But we have two more today in Florida and we have massive crowds. There's something happening. They're not reporting it, Katie. You're not reporting it, Katie. But there's something happening, Katie. There's something happening, Katie. Tur was berated online and physically threatened. NBC assigned a security detail to Tur and her producers, but she stood her ground and suited up for TV spots day after day. The memoir tracks her, becoming a solid reporter and an MSNBC star. Now, for the people out there, the few who may not know, uh, you're an anchor on MSNBC from 2 to 3. Yes. The name of the show is? Live on MSNBC with there Katie it is. <laughs> there it is. Keep it simple. Exactly. I watch it every day. Besides being her personal story, Unbelievable provides an insider's view of PAC journalism following an American presidential candidate. When she joined us on stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Katie Turr played to the locals, and the house band Bob Lord and Dreadnought played to the guest. love this band. For those of you who might not know the, why the music is so special to me, um, they're playing Fish. Yeah! The set list, Stash, Divided Sky, Axela Part 2, Chalk Dust to- Torture, one of my favorites, Free, and then the theme from the writers of the New England stage. Different from the theme from the bottom. <laughs> Um, guys, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much for having me coming out. It's, um, it's a great way to spend a Sunday, right? Good. All right, so as you know, you guys are um, an important state when it comes to elections. Some would say the most important state. Um, and my introduction to covering politics was right here in New Hampshire. It was the very first Donald Trump campaign event I ever went to, and it wasn't at all like the campaign events you guys remember seeing on TV. This was one that was early on. It was in a private home around a backyard pool, and it was the first time I had ever been in the same space as Donald Trump. And I'm going to read to you from from the book about what that moment was like. A little bit of backstory. You're going to hear me reference a gentleman named Benoit. That was the French man I was dating when this all started. Um, I won't spoil it for you, the relationship at least. Um, Katie hasn't even looked up at me once. The words boom through a microphone. Huh? 
I'm in New Hampshire just over a month later, and it's raining. 20 feet across from me on the other side of a backyard pool, Donald Trump is interrupting his own speech to scold me. How does he even know my name? <laughs> LOL, Trump keeps yelling at me, I text Benoit. On July 11th, Benoit and I are supposed to be in Sicily together. The rooms have been paid for, and so have the flights. Our first real vacation, two full weeks together. We'll swim in the Mediterranean, climb Mount Edna, and see an opera in the ruins of an ancient Greek theater, and eat pasta, a lot of pasta. Part of me is already there. The rest of me is right here in Bedford, New Hampshire. <laughs> Katie Turr, fearless foreign correspondent and lady who drinks wine at lunch, is, for the moment anyway, Katie Turr, U.S. campaign correspondent who, for no apparent reason, is getting called to attention by a reality TV show host turned presidential hopeful. I came back to America because of a boy named Aaron, a severely ill teen who asked to shadow me for a day through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Honored, I threw a few dresses into my carry-on and got on a plane. I didn't even bother to take my laundry out of the dryer. I left milk in the fridge. I'd be back in a week, I figured, wrongly. On June 16, 2015, Donald Trump and his third wife, Melania, descended the Trump Tower escalator, waving to a cheering crowd of paid extras. Among the news media, the Trump announcement was seen as a sideshow. The headlines were savage. Donald Trump pushing someone rich offers himself. Five former presidential candidates even more ridiculous than Donald Trump. Donald Trump is running for president and it's going to be so hilarious. Trump's speech added to the belief that he was not a serious contender. He said he'd be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. He vowed to build a wall along the southern border and make Mexico, just a reminder, Mexico, <laughs> pay for it. He delivered his opening lines with a frown and a scowl. His words did not seem destined for the history books. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Macy's dropped him as a business partner. Univision followed. The outrage built to such a point that NBC needed a reporter to cover it for a few days. Katie, someone said, she's just standing around. <laughs> I was just standing around. I did a nightly news segment and followed up on today. At the end of my report, I told Matt Lauer and Savannah Guthrie that despite all the anger, Trump was polling well in New Hampshire. He's number two, I said, behind Jeb Bush. And then I reminded them, it is very early. All right, Matt Lauer said before moving on to the next story. To understand how truly unexpected Trump was, you have to understand something about presidential elections in general, not that you guys don't know this already. The politicians devise strategies and court donors in advance, years in advance. At the same time, newspapers and networks carefully decide which reporter they'll match with which candidate. Trump was not part of anyone's plan. For that matter, neither was I. Oh, what could have been? 
Five days into my New York trip, while I was running an errand, I got a call from a friend at work. Hey, Katie, heads up, the friend said. Deborah Turnus, my boss, is going to, going to assign you to Trump full-time. David, another boss, is going to call. If you don't want to do this, you better figure out what you're going to say to get out of it. Don't let on that I told you, but get ready. Anxiety, indecision, Italy. My vacation with Benoit is in just over a week. On the other hand, as good as life can be in Europe, there's also a lot of professional boredom. By the way, I was a reporter in, in London before this, in case you didn't know. This is why this is relevant. It would, it would be nice to get some TV time, and New York is unbeatable in the summer. I hung up and paced the sidewalk. Then I called a friend from CBS. They want me to cover Trump full time, I told him. My friend had covered Romney in 2012. What do I do? He laughed. The whole thing was ridiculous. Me following Trump, me on the trail, Trump running for president. Still, he urged me to do it. It will be fun, he said. And if you hate it, at least it will be short. <laughs> a few minutes later, just as my source said, my phone blinked with a message from David Verde asking me to come see him back at 30 Rock. I didn't even make it to his office. He launched into his pitch in the hallway. How would you like to spend the summer in New York, he asked as we walked toward the elevators. Apparently Trump was not the kind of sit down in the office and talk your, about your future kind of assignment. More of a let me tell you what you're doing as I walk to a more important meeting gig. We want you on Trump's campaign. It'll be six weeks tops. But hey, if he wins, you'll go to the White House. He laughed from everyone, so much laughing. <laughs> I said, sure, or rather I heard myself say sure. In this business, your first answer is always yes. You can argue later. MSNBC anchor Katie Turr reading from Unbelievable, her memoir of 510 days spent covering the Donald Trump presidential campaign. After the break, I'll sit down with Katie Turr and talk about the role of television news coverage in the rise of candidate Donald Trump and what suffering his slings and arrows meant for her as a person and a journalist. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with Katie Turr from Writers on a New England Stage on this special edition of Word of Mouth after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Katie Turr, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. Turr's memoir of covering Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign for MSNBC and NBC is called Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History. Besides the breakneck speed of covering Trump's run, Turr was personally and professionally assailed by the man who would become the Republican nominee and the president. The Washington Post Paul Fari observed that Trump's public lashings of Katie Turr seemed to become obsessive and wondered if he were acting out a frustrated crush. It is reasonable to speculate, and others have asked whether Donald Trump's attacks were manifestations of some kind of unrequited crush. But on stage at the Music Hall, Katie Turr made clear she rejects that theory. Um, I'm, I'm asked that question a lot, and I hate that question. I, I, I think that that question is sexist. 
I think it's a, that's just a very sexist way of looking at, at the entire thing, that, that this man had a crush on this woman and that's why he treated her disrespectfully. I don't know, I just, I, I don't like it. Well, and you were part of the first ever, thank you, first ever all-female delegation or list of correspondents who yeah. covered the Trump campaign, which is a great thing. That was incredible. I mean, we had, um, it was me, Kristen Welker, Casey Hunt, Hallie Jackson, the Queen, Andrea Mitchell, um, and we kicked butt. I mean, we, our reporting was routinely better than anyone else's. Not well, because we were gifted with lady parts, but because we were very good reporters. <laughs> well, there are a number of people have asked about this, like being a female reporter, yeah. and we can get to that, but this specifically, there are so many strong, smart, real female anchors at MSNBC. So they want to know what goes on behind the scenes in this environment. Do we environment. all hate each other? Yes. Is that what you want to know? <laughs> no, not really. But, you know, there is a part where you reveal that Spanx should be the official uniform of the uh, female correspondence corps. <laughs> but what else? I mean... And maybe some of the men. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do tell. We're, we're changing the nature of this interview right now. But, but what is it that contributes to the success of so many women, given the current climate? I, well, honestly, I think that I'd love to say that, I'm sure NBC would love to say that they had the foresight to think, this is the election that we're going to get a bunch of young women out there, and they're going to they're gonna break news, and they're going to be such a fascinating, it's going to be a fascinating dichotomy to have these young female reporters, these strong female reporters, reporting on the first female major party candidate, but also Donald Trump, who is um, so anti-female, many people would argue. I don't, they didn't have that foresight. This was, um, this just happened to be that the people who ended up rising to the top were the women because we were working harder than everybody else. We were breaking more news than everybody else. And we were willing to do whatever it took to get the story out. Live out of our suitcase for 510 days? Sure, no problem, we'll do it. Put your life on hold. And so when that was over, it was only natural that you would end up elevating the people that did that. And that, that's why Hallie Jackson has a show. That's why Casey Hunt has a show now. That's why you see Kristen Welker on the air every moment of every day. And I'd like to think that's why I have a show now and a book, because we worked our butt off, we proved ourselves, and we have made it very clear that our voices, are, are, our voices matter and our um, reporting on politics in 2018 can't be matched. It's not just, and it's not just people reporting on the White House. We all have the benefit of having a long memory, too, because we were there during the campaign, mm -hmm. so you can really contextualize it. Um, but you did not follow the Trump White House to, to Washington. You are an anchor now on MSNBC. Do you miss it at all, that sort of, you know, the trail is a pretty yeah. grueling but exciting place in many ways. It is exciting. There's a lot of adrenaline pumping. I, whenever I talk to people about um, 2016, I get the, I'm so sorry, it must have been so awful, and people want to give me a hug. And yeah, there were, <laughs> there were aspects of it that were less than, than ideal. Um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't zip my pants up at one point at the end of the campaign because I just didn't fit any longer. <laughs> the personal issues. Um, <laughs> But it was also, I mean, it was fascinating. Love him or hate him, uh, thrilled by the election or horrified by the election, 
This is a reporter's dream to cover something that fascinating, to cover history in the making. And oftentimes history is not pretty, it is very ugly. And, and while I lament the state of politics and the, the state of like how divided this country is and how angry people are, um, there's, there's a reason behind it. And I'm, I'm very thrilled that I get to be the person trying to understand it. So yeah, I miss being there in, on, on the road every day. I don't miss, I'm happy I didn't go to Washington though. I'm very happy I didn't go to Washington. You do make a point in the book, and a couple of people ask about this, the idea that if the candidate does well, you do well, yeah. right? So although, you know, he called you out at rallies, called you little Katie, and berated you, and on Twitter, which led to threats of your physical well-being at rallies and without, you had to have a security detail. Secret Service had to bring you out of a rally once. But he did do interviews with you. It gave you street cred, I think, with your colleagues. Uh, it was a proving ground for you. Is, is there any part of you that's grateful to Donald Trump for that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess you're right. Then if you're going to put it that way, um, I, I, I wish it, it didn't come at the expense of my, my safety. Um, I don't think those two things um, need to be married together. I think you can prove yourself without having um, the sort of um, attacks that, that I endured and other reporters endured. But the, the beauty of this campaign is it, it forced me to be a reporter, not a repeater. It forced me to dig deeper. It forced me to build a network of sources, to, to look at a critical eye, um, look at uh, this candidate and the race in general with a critical eye and not take the word from either the candidate or the word from New York or Washington about what's supposed to happen as gospel. You're not campaigning that much. How can anybody take you seriously if you're not out there showing your face? Because I'm doing television with you, and I am up there actually a lot, and I watched them up there uh, walking the streets, and it didn't mean anything. Well, they weren't able to find No, anything. they did find some people who said that they were undocumented. Well, they certainly didn't write them down and write their names. If you bomb the hell out of it, you bomb the hell out of it. You've got to stop their wealth. They what have tremendous civilians? wealth. I'm talking about oil. I'm talking about oil areas. I'm not talking about civilian areas. Civilians are near oil areas. Oh, give me a break, Katie. Go ahead, next question. I really found a way to, to connect with voters and what was going on with voters and the mood of the country. And that was a real blessing because I don't think my reporting was half as good in April of 2015 as it is today. Um, but also part of that was the competition, just in my own shop. I mean, we, while we were all very supportive of each other, we're all journalists. And when something starts to move, when, this, when a campaign starts to take off, you suddenly get a lot of competition among your colleagues who want to be on the, the lead horse in the race. They want to be the, the top dog, to use a bunch of bad metaphors. Um, and that forced me to just be really um, uh, resilient, to be aggressive in my reporting, and to be very territorial, but in a, in a really positive way. We all pushed each other, and, and the, the viewer, the voter, ended up benefiting, I think. You said the morning meeting, the morning editorial meeting called The Exchange, it became like the Hunger Games. Oh, my God. <laughs> It was, it was, it was, I don't want to relive that again. That was the, that was maybe the worst part of the whole election. Well, but a lot of people ask about the, the sort of physical endurance. Like, how do you keep up with that day after day? You had, you were doing spots sometimes like 11 to 14 times a day. Yeah. 
That's um, it's Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> That's what you expect, and like it, you have to, you have to resign yourself to not having any control over your life. If you make plans, to, it, it's painful to make plans because you will break them. You don't look forward to anything. You live in the moment, and you just you have to surrender, as Fish would say, you surrender to the flow. You surrender to the campaign, and this is this is your life. You're not going to complain about it. You're not going to think too far ahead. Day in and day out, that's what you're going to do, and that's what makes it um, manageable. I got to get up at 6 a.m. Fine. Is it going to? Am I going to go to midnight? I'm not going to think about that yet. But yet, the media, as you know, got a lot of blame for the ascendancy of Donald Trump. So, what about that? What about that role and responsibility to the American voters that you were just talking? I, about? I think that we got a lot of, and to this day, get a lot of uh, criticism for the way that we covered 2016. I think it's fair to a degree. Um, I think that we gave Donald Trump an unprecedented amount of airtime, and we should have a reckoning with how that, how that happened and whether it, or not it was fair. <laughs> Especially to Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz. Um, I think that we covered Donald Trump, though, with a very critical eye. Um, I don't think it's fair to say that we, you know, we gave him a... a we just held his hand and ushered him into the White House, as some people might want to claim. They want, want to blame the media for not being able to show the American public what Donald Trump was really like. And if only we had done that, he wouldn't have been elected. That's not true. I think we did show the American public what he was like. And we, we um, corrected his inconsistencies. We called him, we called them lies when they were lies. Um, we fact-checked him every single day. He had a very loud platform, and, and that's where I think we, we deserve uh, a critical eye. But, I mean, if you guys, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, and I can't see you because the lights are so bright, but is there a single person in this room who didn't know who Donald Trump was on November 8th, 2016? <laughs> raise your hand if you didn't know who he was. That's right. I mean, you all knew. Everyone knew. Right. That was, that was the appeal. In your book, you know, there's this sort of like, there's an inner dialogue, italicized what you're thinking and yeah. what you're saying. And of course, there's a real difference. For a journalist, there has to be a division and a separation. Yeah. Um, and let's get into that a little bit, the sort of process of making news, because there are a number of questions here about what can be best done to counter the fake news label that's thrown onto true stories. Do you think that people have a sense of how news is really vetted and made and how reporting is No, made? they don't. And this is why I think that we need to have more journalism classes in elementary school. There should be a journal journalism class throughout your education. Um, because it is extremely important. We are the we are the one of the last guardrails. We hold power to account. That is our job. If you just want to hear what a politician says unfiltered, that's called propaganda. You need us to push back on it. And I'm not saying that everything a politician tells you is a lie, but oftentimes there's spin in there, there's a certain motivation, they're coming at it from a different angle, and you do need a journalist to come and just correct it. And this fake news epidemic that a certain member's uh, certain politicians are pushing, the president is pushing, is extremely dangerous. Because if we don't all have a ground level set of facts, it's very hard to have a conversation going forward. 
Um, Dean Baquet, the um, editor of the New York Times, was on a, a media show this, this morning, I think it was on CNN, and he was calling the president out for w how he has been undercutting the media and saying that it is extremely dangerous and short-sighted. And that's 100% true. What Donald Trump is doing is not looking out for the country when he goes after the press. He is looking out for himself, period. End of story. It is all about him in that scenario. If you were concerned about our democracy or our country going forward for the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 100 years and making sure that we are strong and capable of overcoming adversity, adversary or um, a foreign power trying to manipulate elect an election, say, you need to uphold our values. And one of our values is the fourth estate, is journalists, a free press. And by taking us down, he's taking down, um, he's, he's making it very difficult for us to function going forward, for us to know truth from fiction, for us to look at someone and say, I, I can believe this person because the, um, the press is, has marked this as true. Or I can't believe this person because there's, the press has marked this as false. Not saying that we need to be your end all for this, but you do need to have somebody out there pushing back because otherwise, how do we know anything is true? That's MSNBC anchor Katie Turr, author of Unbelievable. It's her memoir of 510 days spent on the road covering Donald Trump's presidential run. I'm Virginia Prescott. After the break, I'll talk with Katie Turr about growing up with helicopter parents. And in her case, that was in an actual helicopter. We'll also talk about what she learned about death threats as part of the job. That's when Writers on a New England Stage returns with Katie Turr on this special edition of Word of Mouth. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Katie Turr, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Turr's memoir of following Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign for NBC is called Unbelievable. Katie Turr grew up in Los Angeles, where her parents, Bob and Marika, were a reporting team and pioneers of TV news as ratings-busting spectacle. They were famous for following car chases and arrests and for swooping over crime scenes. They were the first to photograph a celebrity wedding from a chopper and the first to identify and locate O.J. Simpson's slow-moving white Bronco on the freeway. Turr writes in Unbelievable that her parents got ahead in the news business with wits, guts, and a creative interpretation of fair game. Their colleagues blamed them for the downfall of local television and national news and for sensationalized coverage that whet the American appetite for reality TV, the very genre that made the career of Donald Trump. Let's get back to my conversation with Katie Turr in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. In Robert Mueller's investigation, you know, he identified and indicted members of people who worked at this troll farm and saw their exchanges. And they exposed this idea that Americans are really easy to fool, you know, that they are gullible, chronically misinformed. Now, you just talked a little bit about knowing the fundamentals of journalism, but how about now? How do you see your role as a TV journalist working in an atmosphere where people believe one thing and completely disbelieve the others or just label everything that they don't agree with as, as fake news? It's very difficult, and the responsibility is on journalists, but it's, it's also on you guys. Um, we Right now, everybody goes into their own silo. 
They go into their corner and they say, I'm only going to follow this person because I like what this person says. And I'm only going to watch this show because I agree with the point of view of this show. And I'm going to tear down this reporter because I don't think they're being nice enough to the politician I like or hard enough on the politician that I don't like. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Journalism should make you uncomfortable. It shouldn't make you feel better. It shouldn't, it shouldn't agree with the way you want the world to be or you think the world is. Our job as journalists is to, is to put things in an honest light. And honesty is often very uncomfortable. I think the reason why it's getting so bad is now there's all, there's all sorts of options so you can decide what you want to watch. But I think at our core, we don't like confrontation. Um, we don't like things that make us feel uneasy, and journalists are confrontational. That's what we do. And so instead of facing that, instead of opening ourselves up to a differing perspective or, or thinking, hey, maybe this person has a point and maybe I've been a little too harsh on, on this idea or this policy or maybe there could be some good here or maybe that politician is not evil and they're just, they, this isn't benefiting their constituent, whatever it is. Um, instead of doing that, we have all decided that we are going to scream invective at the other side until we think that we can, we can yell at them into submission. It goes for both sides. Um, you guys are, are, are really lucky because you live in a, a state that's very independent um, and also a state that's uh, very, in a, there's a big disagreement over politics here. Uh, this 2016, Hillary Clinton won, but by a very small margin. And one of the conversations I was having backstage was, hey, listen, it's, it's wonderful to be in a place where you have to learn to be tolerant. And you have to learn to understand the point of view of somebody you don't disagree with. If we had more of that in the country, Russian troll farms, wouldn't, it wouldn't be so easy for them to manipulate us. If we all talked to each other and said, hey, no, you know, that's not true, and listened a little bit more and had more open minds, it wouldn't be so easy for some guy in a silo who knows where to make up some ridiculous meme that's only going to divide us further. And oftentimes those memes weren't just go Donald Trump. They were, they were t taking the hot button issues, Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, and they were filling our social media with it in order to make it feel like we were even more divided. So everybody felt more under siege. And we're living among that now, and it's hard to decipher truth from fiction. It's hard to figure out, is this person online a real person or is it some fake personality that's trying to manipulate me? We're living in very um, uh, uneasy times in that way. It's very hard to tell what is, what is real and what is not real. And so we're all trying to figure it out together. And my point to say it's, it's your responsibility as, as well. It's your responsibility to look at things really critically and to be educated and to open up your minds and to look at differing viewpoints and try to understand where they might be coming from. You're listening to a conversation with MSNBC anchor Katie Turr, recorded live at the Historic Theater at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. Okay, golly, we have just opened up so much stuff, but one of the things you talked about is the 
divided public and the incivility that people are saying things that, in the book, you talk about being at Trump rallies, for example, things that people would never say outside of a Trump rally, that people just became unchained. So what do you think that transformation was about? I think it, it comes from a very simple place, which is this feeling of being left behind, this feeling of being ignored, um, uh, that nobody cared what ultimately happened to them. Nobody cared whether they succeeded or failed, were happy in their lives or were unhappy, and that people on the coasts and the big cities were, were totally focused on themselves, and everybody is just out to line their pockets doesn't matter who you are, all politicians are out to line their pockets and the media is just part of it and whatever. Um, and so when Donald Trump came along and said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm not a politician, I'm willing to say what others won't say and I'll be, I won't be PC and I'll say offensive things and I'll be this old school kind of crass, no BS personality, people found that refreshing because they had been so used to, in their minds, politicians coming and saying one thing and then doing another. And Donald Trump wasn't like that. And whenever he fought, people felt like he was fighting for them. He spoke to them in a way that Jeb Bush was not speaking to them or Marco Rubio was not speaking to them. And there was a feeling like, hey, maybe he's not an ideal person for this job. Maybe he is not um, educated well for this job. He doesn't know the ins and outs of Washington. He doesn't know policy. But maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need somebody who is not a part of the, you know, quote unquote swamp. Somebody who's going to go in and, and not be tied to the Republican Party and not be tied to any ideology because he has no ideology. And then he can make a deal. He always talks about what deal, what a great deal maker he is. Maybe he can reach across the aisle and make a deal. He used to be a Democrat. Why not? Let's take a chance on him. How much worse can it be? That's what people thought. And then you have to look now, and when you're looking at to, to 2020, and you have to think to yourself, is, is that thinking still relevant? And I think to a degree it still is. People look at what's going on. The economy's not doing poorly. I mean, the stock market is going up and down. We'll see what happens with that. But at this moment, the economy is doing okay. Let's talk about what happens if tariffs go through and China hits back uh, in a retaliatory way to those certain red states that that Donald Trump's voters came from. Let's find out if the tax cut really does put money in people's pockets. We'll, we'll know that sooner than later. And we'll see what happens on the foreign policy front. But if the economy stays where it is and people are, are feeling like their jobs are, are stronger than they were a couple years ago or four years ago, Donald Trump has a very solid chance of being reelected on that same premise. Sorry. I mean, that's, that's the truth, and that's what I'm saying. The truth should make you uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm going to get hate tweets. I know. I, I already feel it. My phone's starting to buzz. Well, it was pretty terrifying to read about what it must have been like for you inside of these huge rallies where the media was being called out for lying and dishonesty. And, you know, even this was shortly after uh, candidate Trump, then candidate Trump was saying, you know, Putin wasn't such a bad guy. Yeah, maybe he had journalists killed, but, you know, I wouldn't do anything like that. Um, but that is terrifying, and I'm just wondering, like, it how... It is! It was, ter it was genuinely terrifying. I, I had bad dreams. You gave me bad dreams. And, <laughs> and a sorry. little bit of PTSD. 
you get the I got darkest people were saying things to me that I didn't know that, that would people would say in the English language yeah I mean saying things that I, I just I couldn't believe but also threatening my life the whole place was was just alive with anger men were standing on their chairs just yelling at me and one of Trump's staffers shoot away people that were lingering around the press pen and then pointed out said these two guys are going to walk you to your car and it was two secret service agents there so. was some awareness somewhere in the campaign that uh-oh we, this may have gone too far yeah and there was a guy who there's one in particular that i'm thinking of you know we should kill them all let's start with katie tur really interesting to read about what it felt to be there and I thought it was especially interesting Katie to read about your growing up I mean your your parents were in the thick of it in a big way tell us a little bit about them they ran a, a service called Los Angeles News Service yep. providing footage to Los LA news stations so um, this is the best chapter in the book it's chapter six it's about my my childhood and my parents um, and they, so they were, you're right, a television um, news gathering service, Los Angeles News Service, LNS, and they started as stringers, not like that terrible movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, but sort of like that, where you'd, in the middle of the night, you'd go around, you'd, get a, you'd see a car crash, and you'd tape it, and you'd sell it to the stations in the morning so they could cover it on their morning newscasts. Um, and then they built that up from there, uh, ended up saving enough money in a slightly dubious way to lease a helicopter. I'll leave that for your read. Um, and they took that stringer business to the sky and they ended up having a contract with a few um, separate Los Angeles news stations, but they ended up owning, they made the deal where they owned all their videos. So anything they shot, Los Angeles News Service had the rights to. And they covered some of the the most famous events in LA in the 90s. Uh, the Reginald Denny beating during the 92 riots. You guys remember that, the guy that got pulled from the red truck um, and beaten within an inch of his life. My, my dad was reporting, they were hovering over it. They got as low as, I believe it was 50 feet. This, the fact is in the book, because they were trying to scare the guys off. They couldn't land, it was too dangerous. And these gang members had guns and they were shooting at the helicopter. And when they landed, and my, I should say my dad was flying and reporting, my mom was the camera operator. She had a 70-pound beta camera on her shoulder, and she was hanging over the skids, like literally dangling over the skids, strapped in with, by a canvas harness. And when they landed, they noticed that there was bullet damage in the rotor blades of the engine and my mom saw bullet damage in the battery, the camera battery that was beneath her seat. So my parents risked their lives for journalism. They testified against those gang members in the trial and they got death threats for it. So getting death threats for your journalism was something that I grew up with. It didn't seem completely abnormal. I didn't realize that I wasn't reacting the way that most people would react until later after when I was getting death threats, until later because I, I realized it was just kind of the way that I always thought it was done. It's just kind of normal, I guess, <laughs> for the Tur family. Um, so it was a really great way to grow up. I, I didn't want to be a journalist. Um, 
It was a great way to grow up, she says, after talking about death threats. <laughs> well, <laughs> shows, said, it shows you how, how weird I am. I think you said something like, the scanner was my, my bedtime story yeah. and babysitter, and, but you decided like that wasn't for you. But why? What, what? So I, my parents did it. They were really good at it. They, they've won more awards than I could ever dream of winning. They, they broke more news than ever I could dream of breaking. Japanese film crews would come to do stories on this husband and wife team in the sky. It was crazy. Um, but I wanted nothing to do with it. I thought it was, you know, I, was a, I was a teenager and I was a very embarrassed by them flying over my baseball games and like saying, go Katie over the, <laughs> over the speaker. I was mortified, go away. Now I think it's really cool. Um, but my, my dad would, uh, you know, when I was little, he would put a camera on my face and he would say, Katie, do a live report. And when I was four, I would do a live report. I would say, there was a fire and we all went to McDonald's and had a party afterwards. <laughs> and then when I was 14 and he would do it and I had a face full of zits and I was like going through a terrible puberty, I hated it. I was mortified by it and I, I, I fought against it at every moment and we would just have these big duels and face-offs over me refusing to to play ball with this dual live report game while we're driving down the highway um and then i went to college and i was going to be a i was going to be a doctor and one day i was driving back from home, driving from home back to school with my college boyfriend and there was a fire in malibu because there's always a fire in malibu and there was a, a, a police line, and I wanted to see it. I didn't have a camera. I had no reporting job. I just wanted to be up close to it. Um, and so my dad had made me <laughs> a fake press pass, <laughs> a CHP press pass. He, my grandma, it was my grandmother's. Like my all grandmother good fathers yeah. do. He pasted my picture over hers and then relaminated it. It was very clearly a, a shoddy job. And I presented it to the sheriff who was watching the line, and he looks at it, and I mean, he clearly knew that it was fake. And he said, you know, what are you doing here? What are you trying to do? And I said, well, you know, my crew's behind me. I gotta get up to the fire line. <laughs> and he, he let me through. And my, my boyfriend at the time, and this is vivid, vivid, I don't, I'm sure he doesn't remember saying this, but he changed my life. He looked at me and he said, I've never seen you more confident than you were just now lying to that officer. <laughs> and I thought, huh, maybe I should get into news. <laughs> Apparently, by the way, I found out much later that um, a fake press pass is a felony. <laughs> I hope the statute of limitations <laughs> is still out on that. Shouldn't admit um, that. Interesting question from the audience. What are Trump's positive personal traits or policies that we miss if not a Fox News watcher? Um, well, it really depends on your perspective. If you, if you think the tariffs are a good idea and there's a good portion of the country that does, that's a positive policy. Um, there's also a lot of people in the country who will say that this, this tax plan is going to be beneficial. Um, there's other people who say it might be beneficial in the short term but will be not beneficial in the long term and benefits the wealthy more than it benefits the middle class. But there, there are people who, who are really happy with his deregulation as well, are really happy with this idea of rolling back regulations at the EP and making it easier for, say, I don't know, cars um, to meet fuel standards. It depends on your perspective for him. You could look at Neil Gorsuch and say that was a really great 
choice, and I'm really happy the president made that conservative pick for for the Supreme Court, or I really don't believe in abortion, and he's installing um, judges who will who will help roll back abortion or at least limit abortion. It depends on your perspective and where you're coming from. One-on-one -on -one personality trait that Donald Trump has that's, that you could read as positive. He's, he can be very charming, I guess, one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, he's, people like him one-on-one. -on -one. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. That was, that was a nice thing I that just said. That was a really nice thing that you just <laughs> said. But I can't help but think, you know, despite the, the inherent sexism of the did he have a crush on you question, the idea of, or the statement rather, from the Washington Post, um, you know, I was reading about when he came up and planted a kiss on you, on the cheek, by the way, yeah. right before you were, he was going to be on Morning Joe, and I couldn't help but think of the Access Hollywood tape and him saying, if I find a woman attractive, I just go up and kiss her, or other things. And, you know, wonder what that meant for you. You're a woman, you're a young reporter, just new out on the trail. How do, you, how do you get beyond something like that? 100%. Um, first of all, I, I didn't even remember that when the Access Hollywood tape came out. My, I, so much had happened between then and the Access Hollywood tape. It wasn't until I was writing the book that I found that clip and I was like, oh my God, I totally buried that and forgot about that kiss. Um, but this was, in, it, if you'll read the book and you'll get more of it, but um, this was in November of, of 2015 and Trump is coming in to do an appearance on Morning Joe, and he sees me in in the hallway, and I presume he's going to be angry with me because he had been angry right before that, whatever. Um, and he walks right up to me, and he kisses me on the cheek, and then walks away, and I and I froze. I mean, it was it just all happened very fast, and. And it's not as if my friends don't say hello and kiss me on the cheek or some of my colleagues that I'm close with, whatever. That's a fine greeting. It's not a fine greeting when I'm a journalist covering your campaign for president. That's not normal behavior between a journalist and the, and the subject of their journalism. Um, and I was super nervous at the time that a camera saw it and that it was being broadcast live because they do these bump-ins in, in morning TV where they show somebody who's about to walk onto set. And I was nervous that, that the cameras saw it because I knew that a, a, an image like that would really severely undercut my credibility. I mean, what would, you had, what would you have thought of me if you saw Donald Trump kiss me on the cheek early on in the campaign? I, I imagine you would think that anything I said after that was colored in some way because we were friendly in a, in a very friendly way. Um, and that's not right. I mean, I'm not sure what his intention was there, if there was any real intention behind that, but what it would have done if it became a story was make it so that I had an extremely hard time covering him in an honest and real way. Or it would have forced me to go in the opposite direction and just be even tougher than I would have normally been to overcompensate for something like that. It's, it's just, it was a, it's, it's a gross thing to do. We have to wrap, so yes or no question. Will you follow the campaign in 2020? We'll see. <laughs> I'd like to. I'd like to. 
Katie Turr, reading from Unbelievable, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on the New England stage, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. NHPR president is Betsy Gardella. Producer and communication director is Margaret Talcott. The live sound and recording and mixing engineer is Ian Martin. Bob Lord and Dreadnought provide live music. Broadcast producer for NHPR is Erica Janik. Post-production by Hannah McCarthy. Digital producer is Sarah Plord. The musical production manager is Jana Morris. I'm Virginia Prescott.